Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier and our guest today is Scott Baum. Scott is a licensed clinical psychologist and a certified bioenergetic therapist. He is a member of the faculty of the International Institute for Bioenergetic Analysis and a leader of the New York Society for Bioenergetic Analysis, which was formed in 1980 for the purpose of offering high-quality professional training and public workshops. He maintains a private practice on New York's Upper West Side and has been affiliated with the DeMille Center for Psychotherapy since 1994. Scott views psychotherapy as an experiential, problem-solving process. He believes that the deepest, fullest, and most complex understanding of a person's problem yields the best, most creative, and enduring results. I am so pleased to bring you Scott Baum. It's a great pleasure and honor to have you on the show. Thank you. I discovered bioenergetics, the body-centered psychotherapy of Alexander Lowen, back in the early 90s. And I've read many of his books as well as some of the writings of his mentor, Wilhelm Reich. I underwent a course of this therapy myself in the mid-90s in California. And as you know, I've done a couple of Saturday group intensives with you and your colleagues in New York. Mm -hmm. And through this work, I have really come to respect bioenergetic work as a profound healing track that we could be on as a species. But this form of therapy is still highly esoteric. It seems that very few people have even heard of it and and even fewer have experienced it. So I wonder if you could start us off by telling us what this therapy is all about, why you think it's important, and also why you think it's still so marginal. Well, I don't completely agree that it's esoteric in the sense that It's a furthering of a line of thinking and understanding about what makes human beings who we are and uh, and how we function the way we do that's quite old, and many of the ideas are fairly mainstream. I think that it is threatening in some ways, in much the same way that the true understanding of other psychotherapeutic forms, psychoanalysis, for example, is threatening to people, not the caricatured versions, but the actual substance of what these ideas present to us about who human beings are and how we function. So having said that, in the bioenergetic model, which rests strongly on the work of people in the psychoanalytic tradition, starting with, of course, with Freud, and then um, Reich was a, was a star pupil of Freud, and nowadays uh, psychoanalysts are rediscovering the work of Sander Ferenczi, the Hungarian analyst whose ideas and practices prefigure some of what was later to become this whole line that goes down from Reich and into modern-day psychotherapy. The premise that underlies bioenergetics that makes it different from other analytically derived uh, psychotherapies or interpersonal psychotherapies is that somatic process, which is a very broad way to talk about what goes on in a person's body, is indivisible and functionally identical with psychic process. These are not 
psychic process doesn't sit somehow on top of the pyramid like the ultimate human experience in much the way, at least in Western civilization, human beings sit on top of the evolutionary pyramid. But it is true that our ways of understanding what goes on in a person's body are very rudimentary. For example, people talk about stress in a, in a very kind of unfortunately simplistic way. The human body doesn't function without stress. We, we live in a fairly narrow zone of temperature, air pressure, and gravity, and when those things are not acting on a person's body, and a person's body is not responding to them, then we can't function. Never mind optimally, we can't function at all. And there are elements of stress, or what Hans Selye would have called optimal stress, that makes it possible for the human body to function. Hans Selye's idea would have been, based on his original research, that humans are organized, we live in an adversarial environment. Things eat each other. Bacteria attack us. Uh, we need a certain amount of air pressure coming from the outside and a certain amount of resistance to that air pressure from the inside in order to function properly. There's a range in which that's a healthy, constructive relationship. So using stress in a sort of linear way the way people do, more stress is bad, less stress is good, rather than critiquing that particular point of view, what I'm suggesting is that that reflects a lack of refinement in our understanding about how a somatopsychic, that's a body-mind system, as a system, indivisible, irreducible, actually operates. And it operates in very complex and sophisticated ways. And we don't have very good equipment for measuring that. The tools we have, EEGs, PET scans, various kinds of monitors, are extremely crude pieces of equipment. They're a lot more sophisticated than what human beings have had in the past in terms of measuring certain kinds of phenomena, but they're still very crude. So what we're left with ultimately is a, uh, is a self-directed internal study of what's going on inside my body and what do these body experiences mean. And when we do that, which is what bioenergetic analysis, analysis of that process actually is, then we discover that human bodies are extremely sophisticated, highly refined systems of collecting and understanding information and synthesizing it into ever more sophisticated and more complex wholes. And the idea, which is often presented, that somehow bioenergetic analysis has to do with a regression to an infantile state is a source of contention in the field because Reich, taking from the ideas of Rousseau, believed that there was a kind of noble savage inside the human being who once could, that entity could be liberated, one would have a kind of self-regulating, healthy, related kind of person emerge. And that idea, which 
Ralph had and Lowen, I think, subscribed to is not really any longer at the center of the bioenergetic idea. Our, I think the ideas nowadays are much closer to modern psychoanalytic ideas in which people are very complex systems. We become who we are by virtue of a very slow, accretal set of identifications and relationships and attachments with others, and we emerge from that matrix to be ourselves, and where that matrix is supportive and encouraging and safe and acknowledging of autonomy, then there's a chance we'll actually grow into our genetic potential. And where it isn't, um, where that matrix isn't, and to some extent, given the culture we live in, it's always somewhat not that way. It's always somewhat impinging on a person's possibility to emerge fully into themselves. Depending on the degree of impingement and the severity of it and the nature of it and the damage it causes, a person will be less able to become fully themselves autonomous and seeking what is most meaningful and most gratifying and most pleasurable. In this model, pleasure refers not to gratification, not to discharge, not to uh, even getting what one needs, it refers to being connected in some fundamental way to the benevolence that's in the universe, to, to goodness, to positiveness and goodness in the deepest sense. Well, and, can we take that as then a point to look at in terms of why would this be threatening? And also, just for, for those listening who just really have no idea what this form of analysis would entail, if you mm-hmm. could go into it a little bit and tell us, how, how do you as an analyst then read a body and its energies and work with someone? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Um, well. That's two different questions. I don't know if you can integrate the two, but... I'm just assuming that some of the people listening really need some, just some context here. And so sure. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what goes on in your sessions and then maybe find a way to link that to the larger society and this issue of, of the body mm-hmm. and pleasure and why this is threatening. Sure. Practically speaking, what goes on in a bioenergetic session, which of course is somewhat different from therapist to therapist, Um, can a lot of the time look like what people are accustomed to in therapy, which is two people talking with each other in an intimate way, in a more or less open way, depending on where the relationship is at. And with one person, the therapist, making it a mission and setting a priority to be receptive to and attuned to the communications of the other person for the sake of providing feedback and reaction and a supportive matrix in which the other person can grow and develop and mature in their abilities to know themselves and experience themselves. And that can take all kinds of forms, sometimes interpretation, this is what I think is going on here, sometimes feedback, the way you come across to me is and it seems that what you're saying is, 
Sometimes it can be confrontational. I think you're really uh, angry and you're directing it at me or you're directing it at this other person and I don't think you're actually in touch with it. And sometimes it can be restitutive. Um, uh, I'll give a concrete example of a, of a patient of mine who's just gone through a very painful breakup in a relationship where both he and his girlfriend really care deeply about each other and there are real problems that neither one of them can really do much about right now and it may be that the right thing for them to do is to break up. It's still somewhat unclear and he was sitting in his chair across from me talking about it and kind of struggling to allow himself to cry and when I just got up and walked over and put my hands on his shoulders that facilitated the crying that he feels he has to do in order to grieve the loss of this relationship. And it can be as, as small as that and as big as uh, working with someone deeply on their, on the muscular holding patterns, working with one's hands or using a position which forces those muscular patterns to give way a little bit or facilitating very powerful expression of feeling, allowing a person to grieve deeply, to be enraged, to express themselves interpersonally uh, very strongly, either at me as the therapist or some, I also do a group, sometimes in the group with other members, or within the construction of a safe, constructive expression of feeling. This is not discharge for the sake of discharge. This is truly cathartic or cathartic in the traditional Greek sense of a powerful emotional experience which leads to a new integration. And while the new integrations are sometimes microscopic in a, in a literal sense that a small sediment of experience is laid down and at even some people will talk about at a cellular level there's change taking place in them. And so it's very slow and it takes time and there are lots of fits and starts. Nevertheless, the trend is a constructive trend toward new integration and new possibility. And why is that threatening? That's threatening because the person who comes out of that experience is autonomous. Rach's idea that, that pleasure frees people is predicated on the notion that when people are in charge of their own pleasure, in the sense of being connected to goodness and what's right and meaningful, it's very hard to tell them what to do. It's very hard to tell them what's real. It's very hard to persuade or manipulate or cajole them into being who some authority or a parent or a spouse or even a child needs or wants them to be when it's not congruent with who the person actually is. So, you know, it's one thing to talk about empowerment and how important that is and how we believe that people should be empowered and believe that people should be self-determinative. But it turns out that when people are actually that way, they can really be a pain in the ass. They want to have their say. They want to be respected. They want to be listened to. They want to be collaborated with. They want to be included in the process. We don't really have a society that's structured for that. Right. You can't get a whole lot of drones 
to uh, sort of throw right. the line when you have a population who is that's right. So and our, and our, exactly so, exactly so. So it is very threatening. I mean, Reich really was revolutionary in that respect, and so, for that matter, was Freud revolutionary in that respect. And uh, you know, I don't know what the future holds for my field. Uh, I, I think that the the trend toward turning it into a a healthcare service provider is a mistake. In my view, that's not what psychotherapy is. That doesn't mean it doesn't help people with real problems every single day and that it doesn't help people to lead healthier lives. But this is really a philosophical issue about, and I don't need to impose it. I have people who come to me who don't want that kind of growth and development, and I, I don't need to challenge them with it or impose it on them. That's not my aim. I'm quite happy to work within a person's needs and requirements, provided that it's constructive, provided that I'm not colluding in or participating in some self or other destructive pattern, and provided my skills enable me to do the work. But at its core, that's what this work is about, that philosophical issue of what it means to truly, in an existential sense, take responsibility for one's life. Well, this is a perfect segue into the next question I have for you. You have done a good deal of study of uh, the influence of fathers and the male energies in society and the experience of power struggles and issues with authority are so common to all of us uh, here in the United States and, and everywhere in the world, I think. We do live in a patriarchal world, and issues of power are everywhere we look, and they turn up in all kinds of situations, from the nuclear family to the large-scale collective systems. And so I wonder if you can help us look more closely at this vis-a-vis your studies of fathers and your work as a bioenergetic analyst. I'll say, in response to to your intro to the question, I've tried to study this subject. What I have found out is that it's quite difficult to study it in that what transpires at the deepest level um, in fathering and between fathers and children is by common agreement, I believe anyway, among all of us, pretty obscure. We don't study it, certainly not, for example, we, we um, there's, there's pioneering work now in studying videotapes of mothers and infants, and what's come out of that is a very sophisticated understanding of the dance that transpires between a mother and her child moving in and moving out, and if the mother moves in too much or provides too much stimulation, how a child signals that and how a child backs away from it, and if the mother is attuned to that, how the mother then responds to that and how the mother essentially spends a lot of her time repairing damage caused by misattunement. Oh, I'm sorry, was that too much for you? Oh, I didn't mean to to do that so hard or I didn't mean to be so loud and, uh, and and vice versa and the child correcting them and you watch these little infants do that There's, as far as I know unless it's being done right this minute somewhere which it might be hardly any of that kind of research on fathers 
So I've had to largely use my own experience inside myself, although I did recently do a workshop in Washington, D.C., where I, in order to try to get on the inside of this process with this particular group who were quite sophisticated people who are used to working in a very experiential way and used to working with their somatic experience as a source of information, what I offered to them was to become each of their fathers in the same way that as a therapist, I allow myself to let my personal identity go when I'm with a patient and try to take in what the other person is experiencing and through that and what they're evoking in me and through that to understand both them and the people they're telling me about in their life. And what came out of that experience, which has come out for me out of other experiences, is that people don't know much about their fathers on an emotional level or about what transpires between fathers and their children in general. And one way to understand the depth of that um, opaqueness and blocking of the information is to consider that one of the ways that people talk about their fathers, particularly in therapy when they are talking about them, but also in the culture at large, is that the big problem with fathers is that they are absent. They are so uninvolved. And that has certainly changed over the last 25 years. Although we don't study how their increased involvement really affects their children, but we accept as a cultural norm that men and fathers are less emotionally available, and that's kind of just the way it is. We have not, certainly not instituted politically or socially or educationally a program of emotional education for fathers. What all we do is say, well, they should be more involved, but we still accept that fathers, men, are essentially less well emotionally related and therefore more detached. And we pretend that that detachment weakens them when everything we know about human relationships, including, for example, classical psychoanalysis, where the analyst refrains from personal communication, from self-revelation, and even from interaction, that that makes that person more powerful, not less powerful, and that the person who's more familiar, usually the mother, is actually in a less powerful position in the relationship than the person who is seen as the removed great power to whom we all long and whose appearance we all crave. So, thinking about that for a moment, consider that if if, if we talk about a particular mother and we say that she is detached and removed from her children, we kind of universally regard that as a bad thing and as a failure of mothering and as a kind of unconscionable. How could a mother 
not feel for her children, not be more emotionally available. We don't seem to have any question that that, that would be the right way. So look at this disparity. A mother who is somewhat detached or unrelated is automatically regarded as failing at her job, doing something harmful and damaging, and it's kind of unconscionable. A father who's that way is, well, just being another guy. Is That's the way guys are. That's quite aloof. a discrepancy. Yeah, aloof and detached and distant, and you know that's the way men are. So... Um, it's been it's been a, a hard process for me personally. I, I've had to do this for myself. I didn't do this to be a social scientist. I did this because I needed to understand the impact I was having on my children in order to reduce the harm I was doing. That that was my aim and mission, and so that's why I engaged in the study, and I've learned an awful lot, and in the process of learning what I've learned, I've learned that this is, on the psychological map, terra incognita. This is the part, you know, where where no one has gone and gone in and mapped the terrain very much. And in my experience, that is the truth of it. No one has gone and mapped the terrain very much. So it's hard to know what conclusions to draw except experiential ones based on what I've seen and what I know. And what I've seen and what I know tells me that uh, fathers occupy the center of their children's lives often and then are not accountable for that because they're not expected to be related in the actual relationship. And I think we see that manifested in the in the power structure of our culture, as you say, and we see it in a kind of fundamental disrespect for the maternal force, which can be carried by anyone. It doesn't have to be carried by women, but since it is mainly carried by women, uh, it's pretty disturbing that women, as the carrier of the carriers of the maternal force live in a society that is so fundamentally disrespectful of them as people and of that force, of the force that takes care of the collective, that worries about how everyone's welfare is doing and how connections are happening. So the the other side of that, just let me say, the other side of that is that men's enculturation is largely a shame-based and humiliation-based enculturation. You know, men don't refuse to ask for directions because we're too stupid to know when we're lost. We don't ask for directions because we know perfectly well that when we ask for directions and and the guy at the gas station gives us to them, gives them to us rather, he's going to be snickering because the street that we're asking about is the street that the gas station is on. <laughs> well, the flip side of power, of course, is vulnerability. And, you know, we've grown up in a culture that says knowledge is power. So it seems an interesting complex layering when we say that knowledge about fathers, about men, is terra incognita. This makes me think of Alexander Lowen saying that power is often the antidote to feelings of inadequacy and insensitivity. And I'm wondering if there might be something in men looking to be 
terra incognita because otherwise their cover is somewhat blown. That vulnerability and, as you say, that possible shame and peer pressure of shame is at the root of that. Well, yes and no. I, I think that what you say is is correct, and I agree with it, but I think there's always the danger when one makes those kinds of interpretations that one is making a, a sort of classically uh, classical reversal of the power dynamics and that this is really an interpretation that oppressed people make, that, that oh, the powerful people are really insecure and isn't that a shame for them. Meanwhile, they are exercising power. In, in the world I live in, men have real power, and with real power comes privilege, and it's very hard to get people to give up privilege. Certainly, I'm not inclined to give up privilege very easily, never mind whether I think that my privilege is gained at the expense of others. So I, I have a clear sense that it's a good idea to analyze power also from the standpoint of the drive to have it and to exercise it, and that the way men are trained to have it and to exercise it is through intimidation and domination. Now, if you say to me, well, don't you know any men who don't exercise power that way? Because, you know, I know a lot of people who think a lot about these issues and try to be sensitive to them and are progressive in their thinking and in their emotional processing even, but I'll tell you, when I think very carefully about it and think about me and I think about my friends, I'd have to say, no, I don't really know very many men who don't resort to intimidation and domination somewhat reflexively as part of our cultural identity and as part of our somewhat psychic identity. So... Yeah, uh, yeah, knowledge is power if you're willing to, to use it to put a curb on your behavior. Well, I just think that this integrates with what you were saying before about why this therapy and other therapies as well can be threatening because it can upset the balance of power that exists. Absolutely, and if you base your ethics and morality on a body sense of what's right and wrong, on all of this incredible, you know, the information processing that goes on in one's brain and in one's guts where there's another brain and, and at the floor of one's pelvis. And, and if you take seriously these sensations, instead of trying to dominate them or discard them, but rather really give them space, to expand into bigger and bigger pieces of information, more and more coherent information, yes, then that's exactly right, what you say. Then then it gets harder and harder to push people around and to tell them that what they're feeling and believing and seeing and thinking isn't real. Yes. You're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and we're talking today with clinical psychologist and bioenergetic analyst Scott Baum. Okay, so I'd like to change the subject slightly, but it's, of course, sure. very much related. One of Lowen's books that had a profound impact on my thinking was his Narcissism, Denial of the True Self. Mm-hmm. And in that book, he describes a large range of disorders that stem 
from the seduction and manipulation by a parental figure that's usually found in the histories of people with this range of psychological dispositions that he frames as narcissistic. And he ends the book by very effectively making the case that narcissism is just rampant in contemporary Western society. And so I wonder if you can speak a little about this issue of the deep unreality that so many people live with now. I mean, the subtitle of the book is Denial of the True Self. You know, if people are in denial of their true selves, that's quite a loss. And how and why is this false self constructed? And in your experience, can people who are damaged in this way ever get back to their true selves? Well, it's a huge topic you bring up here, and to do it justice really would require more than my response to what you're saying that I'm going to give. But I'll say something about this, but then I think really uh, there are some fundamental misunderstandings here, and, and I don't agree with Lowen completely either, so I'll couch my answer in terms of what I think about this. To start with, it's important that people understand that narcissism regardless of the connotations that the word has, is a normal developmental process. It has to do with a person's development of positive self-regard or self-esteem and then the regulation of that self-esteem so that when a person encounters feedback that they have done something harmful or destructive or painful or hurtful, whether that feedback comes from their own internal sensorium alerting them to the fact that, wow, I feel bad about what I did, I must have done something bad, or whether it comes from outside, gee, how could you do that, that really made me feel bad, that they are capable of putting that in an appropriate context in terms of who they are as people and what they actually did and what the hurt or harm actually was, and that process of regulating one's positive self-regard so that it remains reality-based and flexible and appropriate is what narcissism is. And we all need that. We all, if we're going to live healthy, constructive lives, we absolutely have to be able to do that, both to be able to assimilate negative feedback and information about our destructiveness, as well as appropriately be able to defend ourselves against unwarranted attack and preserve the parts of ourselves that are really good and constructive and helpful people. So, so what we're talking about then are deformations or disorders of narcissistic functioning. And what, what that fundamentally refers to are uh, circumstances in which the developing child is made to feel as if she or he does not have any intrinsic value as a person. Now, loving a person does not transmit the sense that they have value. Loving is one kind of feeling, and certainly it can enable a feeling of, oh, I'm loved and therefore I'm valuable, but it doesn't, it's not intrinsic to it. 
and actually the feelings that relate to a feeling of value have to do with respect and admiration and appreciation, and those are distinct feelings from loving. This isn't all just sort of one diffuse globus of emotion. Each of these emotional states, in my view anyway, has its own particular wavelength or quantum wavelength or significance, and you can't simply replace one with another any more than you can cure scurvy by giving a person a lot of vitamin D or having them lay out in the sun. So in narcissistic development, respect and appreciation and admiration are essential constituents of creating, evoking and creating in a person the structures by which they will feel valued and then feel valuable and be able to value others and be able to absorb uh, an appropriate criticism or attack when they behave in ways that doesn't value others or that isn't self-respecting or that is not respectful of others. When a child, it depends on the extent to which this damage is done, but when a child is uh, attacked ferociously by parents who are really attacking their own parents or the authorities in their lives, and they're attacking the child and they're saying that the child is bad and acting badly, they... In, the, in extreme situations, they destroy the capacity for self-esteem. They don't only harm it. it is, the result is not only, gee, that person has low self-esteem. We're now talking about people who have no self-esteem. And in that context, that's an unlivable situation. It, it is not possible to, to continue to live without some self-supporting positive regard, and where none can be generated authentically, a false self is created, a self that looks as if this is a good, caring, loving, respectful, attentive person who can now try to feel good about herself or himself based on that created persona. But but that's not an actual organic reality. And so the the true self, the the person who might be positively regarded and allowed to grow and develop remains in a very truncated state. However, um, people often idealize the true self. Again, going back to Rech's idea and Lowen's idea that there's some intrinsic good person inside just waiting to come out, and my work, my own personal work and my work with people as a therapist and the work of others who have really struggled with these issues and written about them, says that's not necessarily the case. And I can remember saying to my own therapist many, many years ago, understanding this concept about true self and false self, and I said, yeah, so what happens when you discover that your true self is a wizened, gnarled, hateful, vindictive little dwarf? And she looked at me and she just sort of nodded and said, mm-hmm. like, yeah, what do you do then? 
<laughs> because truth is truth. And it's the false self that takes truth and modifies it and plays with it and restructures it to make it more bearable. But truth is truth. And so now a person who's come to that point has to face being with their true selves as they really are. And so this is a dividing line among therapists. Some of us who believe that the work of therapy is creating an environment and supporting a person in the possibility of being in their truth and embracing that truth, accepting it in the sense of accepting it as truth, and then seeing what they can do with that reality. And others who believe that inevitably once a person comes to be with their true selves, they'll end up automatically opening themselves to the goodness and the love and the benevolence in the universe and in themselves, and they'll emerge into that. And while that's certainly true for some people, unquestionably, it's also not true for other people. And so they have then a different reality to face and a different task to do in their lives to decide how they're going to live with the truth as it is. Well, that's great. I think idealization and utopian thinking uh, gets us into a lot of trouble. And my thought when you said what happens when you see that the truth in yourself has these very ugly components, I thought you express it through some form of art. I mean, so much of the great art Mm -hmm. is a person coming to terms with that and expressing it, making it visible for others. A while back, well, before I say this, I'd like to just ask you where, where your thinking differs from Lowen on that narcissism subject. Again, as with Reich, he has a, at least in my experience, both in his writing and in knowing him, has a kind of uh, idealized and idealistic version of, of who human beings are, and that once the the true person is liberated from the constraining and deforming effects of, of an overpowering society, that 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 person's innate goodness and true uh, self-regulatory capacity for honesty and relatedness will emerge. And that's not my experience nor my belief, although I, I appreciate where it comes from. I appreciate that Reich found in Freudian psychoanalysis a complacency and a willingness to accept um, both both uh, the darkness and the suffering it causes in people, and and some unwillingness to say, you know, it could really be better. Uh, and he rebelled against that, and he said, you know what, this is not okay. It's not enough for people to simply accommodate to the repressive and oppressive cultures in which they live and make the best of them. This wasn't all coming from Freud, by the way. A lot of this came from the next generation on, and and Reich and they had very serious disputes. Um, And and so I appreciate that, and I appreciate the, the power and usefulness 
of the liberating work that he did and that Lowen continued. But I don't share the sort of back to Eden part of this. I, I think I, I don't want to return to my infantile state. Uh, that was not a good place to be, and I don't think that uh, we can depend on the infant part of us to guide us and lead us through this very complex reality that human beings turn out to be possibly a dead end in an evolutionary sense, and if we don't start facing that and doing something about it, we may not survive long enough to even uh, accomplish what we have the potential to accomplish, never mind making ourselves into something new and better. Mm-hmm. Well, also, just to mention that the infantile state isn't always so great for people either, and my last interview guest spoke of kids being influenced in the womb and the intentions involved in conception. Absolutely, that's for sure true. A while back, I spent some time in medical libraries looking uh, at some of the literature on on mental illness and psychological disorders, and I went away thinking, my goodness, when you sort of add up all the different disorders, the anxiety and panic and phobias and depression and eating disorders and substance abuse and, you know, it just goes on and on and on, sleep disorders, sexual disorders, rage, violence, you just start to wonder if anyone's healthy because each one of these disorders has sort of the percent of the population that has this. It's the person that you right. add up all the percentages right. and I, it could go over 100%. Yeah. So, and um, it does, of course. <laughs> because people have more than one problem. I the dual diagnosis and the dual right, diagnosis, right? right? So yeah. Yeah. I went yeah. away just wondering, you know, what's in store for us here in your experience. What do you think is most effective about therapy and where where are its limitations? The question really is, what do you see is possible working with people? What's possible always in any therapy is for a person to become intimate with herself or himself. And intimacy is not just in a couple or a relationship between two people is not solely about revelation. It's not just me revealing myself to you or you to me. It's also about being interested in the other person, being interested in who they are, in what actuates them, motivates them, means things to them. And so... In any therapy, regardless of a person's state and difficulty in this list you refer to of all the things that can be wrong with us, that's always possible. And with that comes awareness. Not just, I know these things exist, but I have an intimate knowledge. I know myself intimately, and I can know others intimately if, if I choose to. So that's always available. What is not always available is an unlimited range of options for change. Um, People in our world are very damaged. They're very damaged by 
society and they're very damaged by their very personal relationships. Just as an example of a social damage that we ignore virtually totally, there's a book by a man who was a lieutenant colonel in the Army. He's retired. His name is Dave Grossman. He wrote a book entitled On Killing in which he says that killing, state-sanctioned killing, he's talking about the military, he's not talking about crime, is the sex of the 21st century in that we have hidden, completely hidden from view, what the real effects are on people, primarily men, of course, of actually killing another person or of being threatened to be killed by another person, that we pretend that men go off and they do this, and then they come back into society unaffected. And he goes into great lengths from a social science standpoint and from his own experience about how what a ridiculous idea this is. So people are damaged in all sorts of ways. And yet, astoundingly, human beings are very resilient and given even a small amount of space in which to grow and develop and mature, we do, uh, astoundingly. And uh, the, the problem that you're referring to, which I really, I really understand what you're saying about that, is that a, a number of forces converge here to create the situation you're talking about. There's a certain tyranny of idealized health that I think... Um, uh, Becker would say comes from our terror of our own mortality, which instead of finding ways to embrace and live with and share with each other, we pretend just doesn't exist. Not that I'm unsympathetic to that. I, I'm no big fan of my own demise, and I find the whole prospect terrifying, but we don't talk about that very much. We go about our business as if we've got it under control. And then there's the whole business business of pathologizing people and how we're going to attend to that and what we're going to do to them. And we see this, of course, in children. There's no really other way to understand the vast over-medication of boys to calm them down and make up all kinds of stories. In my view, there are stories about how stimulants have a paradoxical effect and calm people down. I went to college. I remember what happened to people when they took stimulants. Of course they calmed down. They did papers. You, you don't get wired on stimulants until you've taken a lot of it and you've kept on taking more and more. If you keep yourself on a low dose of the stuff, you can probably keep up a kind of higher level of concentration, but we don't really talk about why people can't focus and can't concentrate and can't slow down. As I know a book out about it just came out. I, I heard the woman speaking on the radio. So, and then there's the, the fundamental fact that, I mean, if you if you want to take the argument from the standpoint of intelligent design, you have to kind of put a question mark at the end of that. This is intelligent design? Childbirth is intelligent design? I mean, really, if you were an engineer and you set out to design a reproduction system, this is the system you would design? We're, we're fraught with design problems. We, we, we are built with all kinds of inherent flaws and limitations, 
and 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 yet and yet within that are capable of extraordinary experiences of of pleasure of um, communion of commonality of connection to the universe but they don't they don't exist in a vacuum so in some ways we're unwilling to do the basic maternal function of gee what's bothering you oh that's too bad let's talk about that is you think there might be something we can do to make that better gee i don't know maybe maybe not maybe it's something we're going to just live with together we're going to live with it together mm. that sounds so good i'm assuming that you've really struck a chord here with people and i'm wondering if you can kind of give us some recommended reading best of in the field so that people who want to explore some of the things you've said in greater depth can do so and also tell us how how we can get in touch with you and the offerings of the bioenergetic societies you're a part of sure i'm I'm glad to do that and i appreciate the question uh in terms of of writings um, right now the field of bioenergetics anyway is in considerable transition but one place people can see Really, some of the range of these ideas is in the, the journal of the International Institute. The International Institute publishes a journal. Uh, I'll say right up front, uh, it's, a, it's a plug for my own stuff. I publish there, so I, I'm not going to conceal that. And other people do as well, and that's available through the International Institute. Uh, and if the people, website or the, or the way to get the web the website for that I guess that's the easiest way nowadays is uh, www.bioenergetic-therapy.com and that will take people to the International Institute website. And while I'm at it, I'll say that the New York Society website, which has links to both the international and also other local groups is www.bioenergetics, with an S at the end, hyphen NYC dot org. And both of those websites link to each other and to other groups. If I'm sure people are listening who are not in the New York metropolitan area, but there's, there are groups, there's a group in Chicago and Dallas and Southern California and um, various other societies around. We have listeners all over the world. I'm sure you do. And there are membership groups of the, we call it the IIBA, the International Institute, uh, on every continent. I can't say there's at the moment yet one in every country, although we're working on that, but there, there are members and certified bioenergetic therapists on every continent. And so uh, using the central website, the International Institute one, um, people can reach local groups and, of course, are, are welcome to contact me any way they want to, either through, um, through the Internet, my particular address. The whole thing is DocSBPsych, so... D as in doctor, SB as in my name, and psych as in psychologist at AOL.com. And I will 
respond as quickly as I can or direct them along to someone else who can respond. There are a couple of interesting books that speak to this vision of bioenergetics. One is a book by uh, Dr. Robert Hilton, who's a very senior bioenergetic therapist in Southern California and has been thinking and writing about this stuff for a very long time. It's got a very technical title, a somatic relational model for bioenergetic analysis, but his work is quite accessible and it's available from the bioenergetic press, actually, for whom I'm sorry to say I don't have on hand the website address, but I'm sure if you Google the bioenergetic press, it'll take you right to them. And also the work of uh, Stephen Johnson. Um, he wrote a book called Characterological Transformation, The Hard Work Miracle, and he's written a number of other books in the same vein, which synthesize modern bioenergetic theory with other ideas in a very, for me anyway, very meaningful way. And, and people are writing all the time. And so the journal, from that standpoint, is very useful because people are writing to each other to carry on a conversation which carries all of these ideas forward. So that's a, that's a good place to look. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm very appreciative that you're doing this.